His mercy is more. How true is that? The longer I'm saved, and that's been 30 years now, the more I realize that I need the mercy of God and the grace of God that's sufficient to cover us and to give us what we need. I'm so thankful for the invitation from Brother Mike to come back, and it's been a joy for me through the years to to come and speak to you and just to see how God's changed and transformed your campus and and uh, all the new things that are going on, the new people that have been added. And I just hope what Brother Mike said about me earlier is recorded because I want to play that for my wife if she wasn't in here this morning to hear that. Uh, we'll be married 25 years in two days. And so she, uh, if she, um, thank you, thank you. It's been a chore for her. It's been a blessing for me. Uh, but if, if, uh, if we make it two more days, it'll be 25 years. So she knows me, right? And she knows me, warts and all. And so I'm thankful uh, that she's stayed with me through the years. And I love your pastor. I'm so thankful for God leading him here over 20 years ago and just being used mightily. I always thought uh, when we were on, in college together that if there was ever a man called to be a pastor, it was Mike Orr. He had such a pastor's heart and such a heart for the Word of God and, and just so thankful for him and his faithfulness to be here and to be consistent. And many of the things he said about me, I could say about him. I'm going to have you open your Bibles, if you would, with me this morning, the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter number 5. The book of 2 Corinthians in chapter number 5. We're going to be looking in a moment at verses 11 through 15. I want to share with you a message today entitled, Controlled by Love. Now, you know the setting here that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth uh, was a Greek city. It was full of paganism. Sexual sin had come inside the church. Uh, there were false teachers accusing Paul of not being a, a legitimate apostle of the Lord Jesus. And so this letter, by and large, is an autobiographical sketch in defense to this idea that he is indeed an apostle. It's a place where he spent 18 months originally planning the church. Uh, it was written approximately about A.D. 55. I don't think anybody in here was alive then. Some of you may feel like it, right? It's early on a Sunday morning. Uh, but he, he's written this letter to prove some things to them. But in this particular section here, I want us to see some things. But I want us to read the text, and then I'm going to pull out four truths out of the text here today that I, that I want us to see and look at closely. So if you look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse number 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore, all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we thank you for the truth in this passage. I pray, God, that somehow that you would aid my preaching in such a way this morning that it would communicate by the Holy Spirit inside the heart of the listener and for every saved person in here today that they would be some correction. They'd be some encouragement. They would be a need for them to be able to put some shoe leather to what they're hearing, a desire for that in their heart. Only you can birth that, God, so I'm asking you to do that. Lord, there may be somebody in this service today that has never been born again. God, help them to see their need of a Savior. Help them to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he was crucified, buried, and raised, and be willing to repent and put their faith and trust in that alone to save them as they yield themselves to the Lordship of Christ. God, thank you, and we ask for aid uh, to preach and to hear during these moments, and we ask it in the name that's above every name, the mighty name of Jesus. All God's people said, amen. So before I dive into the points, because everybody wants to get to the points to write them down, anybody have, if you don't get all the points written down, you'll have some kind of trembling going on afterwards and have to come see me. There's a few in here like that, I know, and we have to get those, that outline down. But before I do that, the very first word in verse 11 is the word, therefore. And so when you see that word in the text, we know that it's a summation or a, what we're about to hear is something that has been, has been compulated because of what's just been said. So if you would be so kind to go back with me and look in verse number 10, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Okay, so this is the therefore. That's why Paul is saying that. That's why he's using that word there. And so let me, let me just give you a brief synopsis of what he's talking about here. This is a, called the judgment seat of Christ. This is for the believer in Christ. This is for the person who's put their faith and trust in him. One day, you and I are going to stand before Jesus. We're going to stand before him. He's going to be at the Bema seat, the judgment seat, and we are going to have to give an account for what we've done with the gifts, the talents, the time, and everything that God has given us since we've come to know Christ. This is not going to be a place where our sin is going to be judged. That was judged on the cross of Calvary for those of us who have been born again. However, our works are going to be tried by fire. And those gifts that we have that come out of that, those are going to be the crowns that we're going to lay at the feet of Jesus. So it's going to be in, in what I would call an awesome time. I would imagine there's going to be some regret there on the part of believers that we are going to be saddened that we didn't give more of our time and our talent and our treasure and the abilities that God had given us. And so it's not going to be a fun time. It won't be a high-five time. It will be a sobering time, and it will be the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that's not to be confused with the great white throne judgment that's going to happen at another time. The great white throne judgment is the judgment where the devil is going to be judged and all of the demons, which was a third of the angels that fell out of heaven. 
When he rebelled, they, they chose to go with him, and they fell like lightning out of heaven. And there, so there's a third of all the created beings that we have as angels now, on the, the two-thirds on the good side. The third became what we know as demons. At the, at the great white throne judgment, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire, and every man, woman, boy, and girl that rejected Christ Jesus as their Savior are going to be cast into the lake of fire. Where the, where the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever and ever. That's the, that's the great white throne judgment. But this context that we're here in today is the judgment seat of Christ. It's this idea because you and I are going to be held accountable for what we've been given in Christ one day as we stand before Jesus that it ought to produce some things in us. And so look with me. In verse number uh, 11 again, we're going to see we as followers of Christ should persuade people to believe in Him. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. So this idea of persuading here means to urge or to bring to a place of confidence. We're trying to convince them. What are we trying to convince them of? We're trying to convince them to follow Christ. We're trying to convince them to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And this might involve answering their questions. It might involve giving them truth. It might involve living it out, uh, what I would call a salty life. You know, there's two kinds of evangelism that, that ought to be a part of every believer's life. There's what I call lifestyle evangelism and then lip evangelism, right? Nobody's going to be saved because they look at your lifestyle alone. They must hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if your lifestyle is not matching that which is fitting what your lips are saying, then you can also become a stumbling block as well. And so evangelism involves life and lip, right? I, I do the two L's because I'm very simple, need the cookies on the bottom shelf. It helps me remember it that way. Maybe you'll remember it as well. As your lips are moving, telling people about Christ, we need to also make sure we're not doing anything in our life that's out in the open where people would stumble over us in coming to the gospel. But it's because of this, because of the judgment seat of Christ, because of the fear of God that we are persuading men. It's, it's this idea that I'm going to be held accountable one day to, to, to what I've done with the gospel in, in helping people to come to know Christ. And so I'm going to, the fear is coming not out of condemnation that I'm going to experience hell one day, but it's coming out of the fear that I'm going to be held accountable for the way I've lived. Do we need to have an invitation now? Every time I read this and think about the judgment seat of Christ, I think, oh, my Lord, I could do more. I could not be so selfish at times. I could give more. I could serve more. I could go more. I could be a better dad. I could be a better husband. One day it's going to be too late to repent and to change. And so it's because of the judgment seat of Christ that we are persuading men and Paul said here in this verse as well, we're made manifest to God. He's, he's saying, in essence, God knows who we are because he's become in question of all these, uh, these false teachers that have come in 
<coughs> excuse me, he said, God knows who we are. He knows that we're apostles. He knows that we're his servants. And, and what he's saying is, is, I hope you know we're the real deal too. I, I hope that you know because of our testimony and what you've seen in our lives that, that we're the real deal, that we're, the, that we're what we say we are, that we're living out the gospel, that we're definitely people who are sent by God to you. And I hope that you're persuading people. You know, when, when Jesus uh, was here on the earth, he, he faced many difficult things, but he was always pointing people to the kingdom. And, and that's what Paul says we ought to be doing, is doing that. And in fact, is when the apostle Paul was before King Agrippa in, in the book of Acts, uh, after a long defense of the faith about Jesus, Paul is asked by Agrippa, do you think that you would persuade me after a short time uh, to, to be a believer in Christ? Basically, that's what he's saying to him. And, and Paul says, I wish to God that everybody was like me as far as a believer in Christ. He said, I don't wish they were in chains like I am now, but I, but I wish that they would be a believer in Christ, And that's kind of the whole mindset, right, that we have as believers. We have something. We have the antidote for, for the, the problem of the world, which is sin, and we want to do what we can to persuade others. Or maybe you're here today and you don't, and the Spirit of God would convict you of that. He would convict you that, hey, I need to do more about reaching people for Christ's sake and for His glory and so we, as followers of Christ, should be people who are persuading people to believe in Him. Secondly, we as followers of Christ should not take pride in appearance, but in inward growth. In verses number 12 and 13, he says, We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're of sound mind, it is for you. So due to the questioning of Paul's authority, his converts should know that he is the real deal. He says that you have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. You see, these men were more concerned about outward conformity than they were inward transformation. They, they wanted to look good on the outside, right? As Jesus would said, you are whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones on the inside. Paul is alluding to the same type of thing here. They were shiny and showy. Uh, there's a distinct difference now in the Christian life between legalism and true holiness. Legalism is about how I look and, and some kind of conformity to my list and set of rules. Legalism says you have, to, you have to do this and so in order to be holy, and you get to control the list, right? What, whatever that would be, whether it's, whether it's hair length or skirt length or type of clothing. I, I think if it's short hair, I'm in good shape right now, okay? Uh, I think Mike and I are going to be all right. Uh, but, but nonetheless, we, we, we get to this little group or set of things that we say, well, if you're going to be holy, you have to do X, and we control that little list there. And, and I would believe that holiness uh, comes out of relationship. 
And the word holy means to be set apart, and God is the standard of holiness. And so you and I know that we can't be holy apart from Christ. There's two types of holiness. One is positional, and that's because we're placed and we're seen as holy because of what Jesus has done in living in perfection, and God's put His righteousness in our account. And then there's this idea not only of that, then there's the practical aspect of holiness where you and I are partnering with the Holy Spirit to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. So we're, we're, we're trying to grow, not in a legalistic way so others can see me, but it's an inner conviction, and it could be uh, this idea that Christ is working in us to grow us. And so as we grow in Christ over 30 years, there was things that the Holy Spirit would let me get by with 30 years ago that He doesn't let me get by with anymore. Does that make sense to you? As we grow in Christ, I I, I thought I had the freedom to do this, this, and I had the freedom to do that. And as I've grown in Christ, my own personal convictions have grown to where God has said, you know what, that's probably not the best thing for me to be participating in. You know, I, I remember working construction uh, when I was a young man and, and had the body where I could take my shirt off, right, uh, before I turned 50. And uh, I, I remember being saved, and, 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 and I remember after I got saved that, that when a woman would come on the job site where we were working that I would, would feel like I needed to cover up. And it, was, it wasn't until I got converted that that happened, but I, I felt like I should put my shirt on, that, that I should be presentable. We're out in the hot sun. We're building houses. We're working in, in difficult environments and all that. But if a lady showed up, I felt like I should, I should cover up. I felt like I needed to... I was just uncovered, and so I didn't put that on anybody else, nor do I put that on anybody else today, but eventually it moved to this idea that that I didn't need to be running around on the job site at all or out in public without a shirt. Was it sin for everyone? Not necessarily, but it would have been for me because my conscience was pricked about this issue. Now, modesty in the New Testament is by and large addressed uh, most of the time to women, but it is not something that we men need to negate either, right? I mean, I, listen, there's a, there's a time when a man just needs to wear a shirt, period, okay? I go by and see guys mowing the yard and mowing the grass and thinking, brother, put a shirt on. The society would be better. You got things wiggling and jiggling on your upper body that shouldn't be doing that. It'd just be good for you and all your neighbors to put your shirt on, Right? You know you've seen them. I saw one yesterday. Yep, I thought that's exactly what I'm talking about. But what happens is, in this aspect, is some people take pride in this list of things that they have that they do not do, while all the while they're not worried about the transformation that God wants to do inside their heart that's going to affect the way they live. It's going to affect the outward when the heart is transformed. And so, and so we need to be working on heart transformation in this idea of what we, what we know to be true in the Word of God and how we're learning and studying and meditating and memorizing and fasting and praying and all the things that God is doing us doing in us, and so we, we do that. And so these people were shiny, showy, uh, but they lacked uh, transformation in the heart. And in verse 13, he says again, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're of sound mind, it is for you. Paul was, 
Paul was actually accused of being a little bit crazy at times. He would take off on tangents in his writing. I'm sure he probably did in his preaching as well. He would be preaching in one direction, and all of a sudden, he's taking off in another direction. But, but Festus, even in this time where he was before Agrippa, Festus has said, Paul, your great learning is making you mad. Let me give you the, the, the Ronnie Smith translation. Paul, you're nuts, right? You're, you're crazy. You've lost your mind. Your oil doesn't touch your dipstick anymore because of all you've been learning, right? You're in excess here. That's, that's what he's saying. But Paul knew better, didn't he? Paul knew that what was happening was the transformation work of Christ in him and his excessive emotions one, at some point was, was because of the Spirit of God that was in him and his glory was not in this world, but it was in helping build the kingdom. His vision, his testimonies were also a source of ridicule. His conversion was considered crazy by the Jews. Even his self-condemnation was even frowned upon as he says, I, I do what I don't want to do and what I don't want to do I end up doing who could deliver me from this body of death thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord in Romans 7 where he has this great wrestling time I don't believe Paul was some scholars say that was pre-conversion I don't believe that was pre-conversion at all I believe that was Paul living out the Christian life like you and I are every day and saying man I'm still not what I want to be I'm still not what I should be and so He's accused of all of these things, and you, you may have had that. You know, I've had people say to me, well, you, when, when I would say, you know, well, I was, I was a wretch before I got saved 30 years ago, and, and I've had people say, oh, you really weren't that bad. Well, number one, you didn't know all I did. <laughs> number two, you didn't know what my mind was like. Number three, you, didn't, you, you weren't there at all these things, and, and, and it's the idea that I realize the closer I get to Christ, the more I need him. And the gospel doesn't lose its power today. I'm so thankful. I'm more thankful for the gospel today than I was 30 years ago when I was converted. Because I realize without the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have no hope. I have no hope today. And so the apostle said, I, I'm doing this for God's glory, and I'm also doing it for your sake. I'm enduring all of these things for your sake. He wanted the church to grow. He, you know, Paul, I'm sure, could have said, hey, I, I don't need the trouble. I could go make a good living making tents. Let's just forget it, right? I'm getting beat half to death, stoned, left for dead. I'm sure that was great fun, don't you, don't you imagine? No, he was doing it for them so more people would come to know Christ. I wonder what kind of sacrifices you and I are making that people would really come to know Christ. What kind of creature comfort are you going without that people could really come to know Christ? We look throughout the New Testament, it's riddled with people who, who made great sacrifices to get the gospel to the nations. The third thing I want you to see in this text is we as followers of Christ should be controlled by the love of Christ. Verse number 14, he says, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. The love of Christ controls us. That, that word that we get there, controls, is, it means to hold together. It means to hem in. It, it kind of leaves us no choice. We're so constrained. It's almost like pouring something in a funnel, right? 
You pour something in a funnel, it's, it's going to be channeled down to where it comes through a very tiny hole. It's all moving that direction because of gravity and because of the parameters that have been built and the love of Christ constrains us in that kind of way. Those of us who have been born again, the love of Christ, it controls us and, and leads us in the direction that God wants us to go. When... when when working through a call to ministry, many, many preachers hear this from a mentor. They say, if you could do anything else and be holy and happy, go do that. That's some good advice, by the way. When I was working through that 28 years ago, I, I did that for about 12 months. I was working construction and, and was working for an outdoor company making outdoor hunting videos, and, and I loved both of those things. I loved to build things, and I, I loved to do the outdoor part of what I was doing. And so for a year, I just went and did that. And I was miserable in both of those things at the end of that year and knew that God was trying to get my attention about getting equipped to have a lifetime of ministry. And so I began that process. The Apostle Paul he talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9, 16. He says, For I, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He was so constrained. What was that by? The love of Christ. The love of Christ had so affected his heart and what Christ had done for him that it had, it, had, it had compelled him, it had constrained him, it had channeled him. He was controlled by the love of God to serve Christ. That's what every follower ought to feel like. We ought to feel like that it is by the love of God that constrains me to be faithful to live out the Christian life, to be faithful to serve in my local church, to be faithful to witness we should be willing to make much of Christ at great expense to ourselves. For Christ has made much out of you at the greatest expense to himself. But I'm, I'm concerned that we in the American church don't know much about that. He says, having concluded this, that one died for all. Jesus' death was sufficient to forgive every person in the world. God demonstrates his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave us the, his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And so while his death was sufficient for to forgive the sin of every person in the world it's only effective for those who repent and believe the gospel his offer is universal and, and but his but but this idea of of salvation is selective in scope in this idea and it takes a repentant faith in order for that that atoning blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross that was sufficient for everyone to be applied And I think any other view would cheapen the death of Christ. A true believer's affections at that point are changed. Did you hear what I just said? When you're born again, your affections are changed. If your affection have not been changed 
towards the things of God from the world. Listen to me now. You've never been born again. I don't care how many prayers you've prayed, how many times you've been baptized, how many times you've walked an aisle, how many times you've joined a different church. When Christ comes into us, he changes us. Makes us perfect, you'll go like this. Not perfect. Transforms us, begins that, changes our affections and our desires, absolutely. Challenges us in what we're doing and how we're thinking and how we're living, absolutely. So we've concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Now, what's Paul talking about when he says that, therefore all died? Well, a couple of possibilities here scholars talk about. One is all died because of, of what we would call original sin and this idea that everybody's born with a sin nature because of what happened in the garden. Y'all know what happened in the garden, right? Adam and Eve sinned, and, and, and the sin's credited to Adam because he's the leader of his home, and, and, and he knew better because God had spoken to him, and he stood right there and let it happen, and then he ate himself. And the sin is credited to Adam, and because of that, every man, woman, boy, and girl is born with a sin nature after that that was born in the likeness of Adam, with the exception of one, right? The Lord Jesus Christ skipped the natural process of conception. The Holy Spirit placed the seed of God into the womb of Mary, the virgin, skipping the natural process of conception. Therefore, he's born without a sin nature, fully man yet fully God, and lives a perfect sinless life that you and I can have eternal life because of his sacrifice on the cross. And so when we think about that, that, that could be a possibility, therefore all died. But it also could be this idea that all died to the old self of those who have come to Christ by the way of the cross. And so the scope of all here is just this idea of all of the redeemed. And he's going to carry this thought out in just a moment a little further as we're going to see in point number four. But we serve him under the, his compelling power because of his great love for us. So we see here in this text that the two motivational factors are fear and love. Fear because of accountability and love because of what's been done for us and what continues to be provided for us. It kind of reminds me of when I was a kid, you know, my, my mom and dad, they, they, they meant what they said, said what they meant. They were those kind of people, and when they told me to do something, it wasn't open for debate. Y'all had parents like that? It, it wasn't a time to, to say, hey, you know, um, I don't think I'm going to do that right now. That wasn't a good idea. Why? Because I feared what would happen to me in loving correction. I feared that. But yet I knew that my dad loved me, and I knew that if I needed protected, he would protect me. I could crawl up in his lap, and I didn't want to do things that were disobedient because I didn't want to hurt his heart. So my two factors of motivation for obedience was fear, and it was love. And that's just a, 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 an earthly picture, if you had a good home life, of what the heavenly picture is magnified as. The heavenly picture is much greater than that, but the two motivational factors 
our fear and love. Now, the fourth thing and final thing we as followers of Christ should do is that we should live for Jesus' sake. Look in verse 15. He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul said, we're no longer to live out our own plan, our own fleshly desires, sometimes even our own dreams. Jesus died and rose again for us so that we might be redeemed, and because of this, we should live under His Lordship. We should have no idols before Him, right? Now, I know we in the American culture don't struggle with idols, right? I mean, there's nothing that we have that we would struggle with along those lines, so I'm glad that that we can just skip over that. No, I kind of thought I'd drill there for a moment. (laughs) This idea that we have to ask ourselves, am I really living for me or am I living for Christ? I, I was thinking about an instance as we were driving down here today, or actually as I was walking very early this morning, and we were staying in, in north of Columbia, Alabama, on a, on a, in a little uh, Airbnb house that there's seven of us, so we need, we need a few beds, and a hotel just doesn't do it anymore for us. And so we're, we're up there. But as I was outside walking and thinking about some things, about is there any idolatry in my life? Do I, do I have any idolatry in my life? That's a good question for you to ask, I think. And, and the Lord brought something to my mind. A, a few years ago, we went to a football game, and, and we were watching Georgia play Texas A&M in Athens. And I'm there. Now, I'm an outdoorsman, okay? So I've been an outdoorsman my whole life, and I like outside, and I don't mind getting wet, and I don't mind the mud, and I, none of that stuff bothers me. But, but we're there, and it's a monsoon. I mean, it's, it's what we would say in South Georgia, it's flat raining. And I've got my, I've got my boots on, my rubber boots on. I've got a rain, rain pants on. I've got my rain jacket and my hood. Brother Mike, I am not getting wet. Why? Because I'm going to stand there and risk getting struck by lightning to watch this football game. I had that instance pop in my mind as I was thinking about that this morning, and the Spirit of God prompted my heart and said, would you, would you stand and listen to the Word of God being preached like that all afternoon in weather like that? You know what the answer is, don't you? I'll tell you what the answer is to that today. You bet. Where's my boots? Why? You see, we've got to evaluate the way we live. The gospel should affect the way we live. It should change us. It should transform us by the renewing of our mind. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yet we do everything we can to stay alive as long as we can. And I'm I'm all for that. I'm not ready to die. I'm, I'm ready to die, but not ready to die. You know what I'm saying? I'm not scared about dying because I know Christ. It's just the getting dead part that concerns me a little bit. I don't know how that's going to happen. Right? That, that, that's, that's concerning, 
but I ought to be living for his purpose and his mission. And we need to know what that looks like, okay? So there are a few things that, that we could look at to, to see what that looks like. First of all, God wants you more than anything to have character transformation. And that comes from a heart that is, that is overflowing with who Christ is and you're, you're taking things in, you're, you're applying them to your lives and you're allowing God to transform you. I love what Dr. Stephen Olford used to say. He said, God's more concerned about what you become in him than what you do for him. You take care of the depth of who you are in Christ and he will take care of the breadth of the impact of your ministry. Many guys get in trouble and many ladies get in trouble when they get so busy doing things and they stop being transformed in their character. In fact, as I could take you, I go to Baptist churches all across the United States. I could take you to some Baptist churches and, 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 and you could see that some of the busiest people are some of the meanest people. But they're busy but they're not taking any time to transform their character. The Holy Spirit is not in the fullness and flowing out of their lives in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so one of the first things that we need to be concerned about is character transformation. The second thing, then, is kingdom impact. It's kingdom impact, and that starts with us impacting the people that are in our family, our spouse, our children, and, and that spills over into the local church and into our community, and, and, and then we're, we're concerned about how we're going to impact those people for the glory of God to, to build the kingdom. And then ultimately, that overflows, number three, into proclaiming the gospel. It's gospel proclamation that we're concerned about. We're, we're preaching the good news, whether that's simply pulling out of our pocket a, a Bible track and handing it someone, inviting them to church, or taking the time to, to walk through that with them and, and, and to show them what it means to come to know Christ as their Savior. And we're, we're proclaiming the gospel. We're sowing seeds because we're expecting God to bring a harvest. And the problem is, many times, we're expecting God to bring a harvest, but we've not sown any seed. It'd be just like me going over to the window today and say, Delana, where's, where, where's my tomato plants? Where's my tomatoes? And where, where's, my, where's my sweet corn? And she looked at me and she said, well, you dummy. You didn't plant any. You, you didn't plant any of that. But you know what? We as a church think because we got a sign outside, built a nice, pretty building, that we're just going to see a lot of people saved because of that. And do you know what? That's not how it works in here. You got to go. It's not your preacher's job to do all the going, it's not the staff's job to do all the going. They're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's your job to go. It's your job to go. And so gospel proclamation, it happens. And then disciple-making, right? And that takes time. And, 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 and then when you get through the fourth one, right, after, after gospel proclamation and disciple-making, you, you repeat steps one through four. You're still working on character transformation. You're still working on kingdom impact. You're still working on gospel proclamation. You're still working on making disciples 
And it's over and over and over. As long as God gives you breath, we become others-focused. Church life becomes more about others than it does our whether we like something or not. Whether or not we, we thought the music was too loud or, or it, we didn't sing it the right way or whatever it was, we, we become so self-saturated. When somebody shows up at church, we ought to be saying, hey man, you know what, I need to go over and talk to them and find out who they are and where they're from and, and, and why they're here today and make sure they're welcome and make sure they know where to go to Sunday school and make sure they, they've got something to do and, 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 and I help them connect, right? I ought to walk across the parking lot and see them. He said, well, we got greeters for that. Well, how about, how about somebody else taking some initiative without having to have a baptized title and just go do the work of Christ? Oh, I know I'm meddling now. I love you, though. I'm preaching to me. Now, how can I be more welcoming when people come to the house of God? How can I be more effective in discipling those who the Lord brings to me personally? And how can we do that in our churches? You see, the longer we're in Christ, the more we see our need to die a deeper death. While in theory we died with Christ, yet practically we still struggle with sin and selfishness. We still want to live for our own desires. You know that unholy trinity, me, myself, and I? He raises his old ugly head every once in a while, and sometimes he controls and consumes, and we get convicted. And we know that we need to change. And so, because Jesus died for all, we should no longer live for ourselves, but for Him and died and rose again on our behalf. That's surrender, isn't it? That, that's the picture of being on your knees with your hands lifted high. It's this idea that, that you and I have no will of our own. We have some desires, but if we say, oh God, we don't care if you do it or not. We want to be where you want us to be. We want to do what you want us to do. We want to go where you want us to go. It doesn't matter how dark. It doesn't matter how difficult. It doesn't matter how much sacrifice it has to be. I'm convinced, though, just in the convention that we are in of churches, if that were the case, we would see a different America. Church becomes more like a social event than it does to worship the King of glory. Becomes more about what I want and what I desire than, I, than me leaving thinking, man, I hope God was pleased with my heart attitude when I walked through the door today. I hope God was pleased with the way I sang with all my might because the tomb's empty. And I'm sure that's all of you in here today, right? But sometimes that's not me. And so let's set our eyes on Christ. Let's set our eyes on His character and becoming like Him. Let's, let's set our eyes on His purpose. Let's set our eyes on His mission, and let's strive to get it accomplished. You know, God's not finished with anybody in here. You know that, right? 
And the reason you know that is because you're still sucking wind. (laughs) The moment you stop sucking wind, he's finished. You still have time to make an impact. Your body may not be able to do what it used to do. Your mind may not be as sharp as it used to be. But God's got a plan, and he expects you to use it, to carry it out, to walk it out until your last breath. And so I just want to encourage you today to let the Word of God transform you. You may be here today, and you, we're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to ask those to, that, are, that are to come and to lead us. They're going to come now. You, you, may, be, you may be here today as a, a believer, and God's pricked your heart in some way, and you feel like you just need to come get around this altar. Maybe you need to come tell Pastor Mike something that, that, that you need to... Maybe it's something you need to get right. Maybe it's something you want to talk to him about. He's going to be here in the front. This is going to be a time for you to respond to what God wants you to do. You say, Brother Ronnie, can I respond in my pew? You can. The key is that you respond. The key is that you respond to God and that this leaves you uh, different because of your time in the Word and your time of obedience to the Word. But you may be here today. You may be here today and you've never been born again of the Spirit of God. Your character can't be transformed because you don't know Jesus as your Savior. You don't know who he is. You've never allowed him to to come into your life and to begin the transformation process. Well, I want to encourage you today, if that's you, God's dealing with your heart. He's drawing you. I want to encourage you to step out from where you're seated in just a moment and come and tell Brother Mike, I need to be saved. I need to talk to somebody about becoming a Christian. There's nothing greater that could happen to you, and that's going to begin a wonderful journey for you that will, will never end. Oh, that'll come to an end in this life, but you'll just graduate on to glory for eternity with Jesus. What a wonderful, wonderful trade that is. And so I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Your pastor's going to come. I'm going to pray. You respond to the Spirit of God as he's leading you. Lord, thank you for how good you are to us. Thank you for your word. I pray now, God, that you would use it to change us, to transform us, to grow us, to fill us. And God, I'm asking you, Lord, to speak to us in a way that glorifies you. I pray you would save lost people, those that don't know Christ yet as their Savior. And I pray, God, that you would work in the hearts of all of us that believe you to help us to die a deeper death, that we would literally be controlled by the love of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's all